couple who, um, they're 12, 13-year-olds um, who are heading off to Young People's Discipleship class. You're welcome to go now. That's fine. You know, in, um, I just wanted to uh, take you back a little bit. For some of us, it'll be a bit further than you've lived. Um, but um, for some of us, you may remember. And uh, for those of us who were born after the 1960s, you may have even seen this or heard about this uh, because it was such an iconic television series. Uh, it was called Batman and Robin. Do you remember the original? The original? So, you know... Um, in their, um, their tussle with the, with, the, um, with the villains, you know, they'd throw a punch and up on the screen would come a literal kapow, you know, that kind of thing. It was quite comical. And if you looked at it today, you'd, it was quite a laugh. Uh, at, um, but the interesting thing that is, is uh, in the 1960s, I was born in the 1960s, so to the late 1960s, I happened to catch this on my grandfather's television and thought I was quite amazed with it, you know, Wow. Uh, real heroes. Uh, but um, the man who played Robin was Bert Ward. Um, and uh, Robin had an interesting statement he would make all the time. Uh, whenever, a, uh, whenever a situation, an intense experience unfolded in his life and something wow happened, he'd, go, he'd say this. He'd go, holy, first of all. You know, and uh, if you're a Christian, at that moment you could bow in prayer. But the reality was it was often uh, holy something, like holy cow, Batman, that was close. Do you remember those statements used to be made? Holy. And there was a whole, if you, if you Google it, you'll find there was like hundreds of comments he made. Holy heartbreak, you know. Um, holy uh, whatever it was. And he'd, he'd make this statement. And um, the interesting Interesting one that we still today, you hear people say, in response to something that's happened that's quite dramatic, they'll go, holy cow. And uh, that statement originated, well, partly originated because of the Hindu faith, um, because we know in the Hindu faith, cows are seen as sacred and they don't eat the um, cow meat. I, was, um, I uh, tested this theory. I went to McDonald's in India, in Gujarat. And sure enough, there's fish burgers, there's chicken burgers, there's no Big Mac burgers. I mean, how do you have a McDonald's without a Big Mac burger? I mean, they were founded on the hamburger beef patty, weren't they? And yet not in India. So we see partly this statement has come from that, that cows are seen as sacred. But, you know, the reality is it was a misuse of the word. Would you agree? It wasn't what the word was intended to be used as some catchphrase or something because it's quite, it's quite an important word. Um, it was misused in the 1960s, and today it's kind of misused as well. And not only is it misused, but I see the word holy or holiness is sometimes misunderstood in today's society and what it really means. We sang about it this morning. You sang a song. You mightn't have noticed, but we said holy in our singing. Uh, we talk about the Holy Spirit, and we talk about many things that are holy. And we can sometimes, it's been misrepresented or wrongly perceived in what holiness really is. And so for some of us, you know, today if Jesus was to walk into this church, maybe with uh, faded jeans, a leather jacket and ride a motorbike, you all know that there's nothing really unholy about faded jeans, 
or motorbikes or leather jackets. Is that correct? There's nothing unholy about that. It's just that we would perceive and say, well, that doesn't seem to particular, you know, kind of display or, or an example of a per- that we thought Jesus would be dressed like that. It wouldn't be. Is he really holy? And yet, there's nothing wrong. If I wore um, um, shorts and a singlet and, and thongs and preached today, you would have possibly said you missed the bus to Tenham Sands, James. Did you? And there's nothing unholy about shorts and a singlet and thongs. The reason, and, but we would say, well, that's, it just doesn't seem right that you wear that in church. And the reason it wouldn't be right is it's just inappropriate, but it's got nothing to do with my holiness. Is that correct? It's just inappropriate. You don't want to look at my hairy legs and armpits, hairy, sticking out as I preach, do you? No, it'd be a distraction. So, so sometimes we have a misconceived, and certainly society has a misconceived understanding of holiness. Um, uh, the concept of holiness can de- mean different things to different people sometimes, and maybe the concept can even seem a little out of date for people in our communities because for some it conjures up the image of maybe a lady with a hair bun a black long skirt and black stockings, and that's holiness to them. And who knows that that's not necessarily holiness, but that what it can conjure up somebody sometimes. Um, maybe we've heard the statement made, or maybe even against yourself, or you've heard someone say, "Oh, you're just holier than thou," and uh, where it kind of um, it refers to the endless, and they're referring, or oh, there must be an endless list of do's and don'ts. And you know that's not truly what holiness is all about either. Uh, it may, you know, the idea of holiness has suffered many false concepts over the centuries. Many false concepts, because we find that the holiness has got really nothing to do with the outward appearance as much as it has to do with the condition of your heart. And we've been talking about that this morning, where our heart lies. Um, it's got nothing to do with what we wear or what we um, necessarily have so much. And I look, I understand that when there's, a, there's an element of holiness in here, it does reflect on what we have on the outside. Please understand, I understand that. But holiness starts right where we should all start, and it's in our heart. Um, true holiness simply means separated and set apart for God and morally blameless. Is that simple enough? We complicate it with a whole lot of other stuff. But it means simply um, separated and set apart for God and morally blameless. And holiness was God's idea. God's idea. In Leviticus, he just says, I want you to be holy because what? I am holy, he said. I want you to be holy because I'm holy. Um, Peter actually repeats this in 1 Peter chapter 1. He just says, as obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you've had when you lived in ignorance. That is, in your former life before knowing Jesus. He says, but just as he who called you was holy, so be holy in all you do. And then he quotes Leviticus chapter 11 verse 44 again. Be holy because he is holy. I, um, in ancient times... Um, in the Old Testament part of the Bible, you know, when Israel was the chosen nation of God. Um, many other nations, uh, whenever they looked at the holy God, they had this understanding that he was an angry God and that the only thing you needed to do was try and appease God and so he wouldn't be unhappy with you because if God got unhappy with you, maybe he'd hurt you or even kill you. And that was the idea of what all the nations on the earth at that time kind of thought about even their gods. You've got to appease them. You've got to make them happy, keep them happy. 
And yet Israel also started to fall into that framework and started to think, that's what, if we just keep you know, God happy. And he was to be afraid of and not loved. And that's a sad uh, indictment because that's not what God was about. Um, God was not a God who needed to be manipulated or, or appeased. Uh, and he desired a relationship prior to anything that we ever had to do for him. He desired a relationship with us. So it wasn't based on what good works we did. It was based on his love for us. Even in Old Testament times. Now I know that God established the law because he needed to establish something so people didn't continue to destroy and hurt themselves and others. But we find that God was not a God who wanted to be manipulated. He didn't have to be manipulated by, by us appeasing him. He didn't have to be coerced. And the Jewish nation had to learn that God didn't need to any of those things before he would love them. And so we see in the Old Testament, there were some men and women who broke out of that mold and uh, they just walked with God. They knew God. They just didn't know about him. They knew him. And Enoch in, in Genesis, it says he walked with God. In other words, he had a relationship with God, even though the culture of the day was, oh, you know, cower and be afraid of this incredible God, because if you don't please him, he may strike you. Enoch broke the mold. If we talk, look to another man in Noah, in about uh, uh, Genesis chapter 6, it says Noah was a just man. In other words, he lived right and he walked with God. And then we go into uh, Genesis 44 and we see Abraham and Isaac. It mentions they walked with God. And so people broke the mold and actually had, had come to know God and not just know about him. So this was this holy God. And so we can begin to see the ultimate purpose of God is that he wanted his people to bear his name in his character because he says, be holy as I'm holy. He wanted us to be like him. Isn't that amazing? And you didn't want to be, how would you like to be like a God if he was just an angry, upset God? No, he wasn't like that. We see that he says, come on, bear my name and bear my character. And the wonderful thing about holiness, folks, is it's established for a reason. Did you know because we see the name holiness and you've got to get out of your head all those preconceived ideas of what holiness is. And holiness was established for our good. So humanity could live a life free from consequences and tragic um, outcomes. I'll just say that again. God established holiness so that we could live free from tragic outcomes and bad consequences. He didn't want us to live a miserable life. He wanted us to live a good life and enjoy a blessed life. Would you agree? And holiness was established, not that God could be anything but holy, but he, was he wanted it to be established in humanity because he wanted people to know the joy of life and blessing and relationship with him. Because the truth is, people who live a life of poor decisions, bad attitudes, and no regard for right living have trouble follow them all the days of their lives. But people who make good decisions, great attitudes, and have a life of righteousness or right living, living more often than not, find that there's blessing and joy follow them all the days of their life. Would you agree? It's a simple thought. Bad decisions, reckless living, sinful life. What follows you? Trouble. The other one is live a life of good decisions and live, live right before God. What follows you? Blessing. It's not difficult, is it? But sometimes we get it so complicated. Live for God, blessing. Don't live for God, trouble. When are people in the world going to work it out? <laughs> you, know, I want, you know what I want to follow me? I'm sure you know, you know what wants you to follow you. There's the follow blessing to follow you. And um, 
So here lies the problem because we have seen a decline of morals and standards within our community and our society. And, and so holiness, holiness in our community is seen as outdated. Unfortunately, it's seen as an outdated past. It's a, it's a past thing. And we see that people who, uh, who think of people who are holy see them as ignorant of the reality of modern cultures. Oh, those holy people, they're just ignorant of what really should go down here. And thus, we today are facing one of the uh, incredible uh, debates of the century, same-sex marriage. Isn't that true? Same-sex marriage. How did we get to a point where probably in weeks or months to come, we're actually going to vote whether men and women living together in sexual relationships can be actually acknowledged as married? How did we get to this point? You know how we got to the point? About a century ago, people started to talk about it, same-sex, not marriage, but just relationships. In actual fact, it's been in the, in the earth all throughout its history, hasn't it? Solomon and Gomorrah were known for the butchery of same-sex relationships and things. But we started to talk about it in Australia in about 1906, and then, and then of course, they stopped talking about it, and, we, and people started to approve it. And now we get to the point in the last 10 years, we've started to talk about same-sex marriage, and we're not just talking about it. Now we're at the point where we're either going to deny it or approve it in, as law in our nation. Um, and I please understand me. I, I understand the realities is we're not here uh, to bash people, but the reality is it, it, it is a decline in our moral standards, isn't it? It's just a complete decline. Um, see, holiness, holiness uh, unfortunately, when one, one generation accepts, the next generation will approve and the next generation will implement. That's the decline. Unfortunately, that can happen. Now, God willing, it may not happen here in Australia, but the reality is that's what happens. That's what happens. One generation accepts it, and the next approves it. The third or fourth will implement it. And um, I can remember there was never a time when we would talk about this stuff, even in my lifetime, in your lifetime. Now it's open. We've got to embrace it. So holiness is so basic to the Christian life. It's so basic to us. Sometimes we don't talk about it enough. And I just wanted to talk about it this morning because I think it's still an incredibly important word in our lives. Holiness is not nose in the air. Well, I'm holier than thou. Folks, I don't want you to ever think that's what it is because it never will be. It'll never, improve. It'll never impress God. Holiness starts in the heart. It's never to do necessarily with your outward appearance. It's never to do necessarily with, with your background or where you come from, whether it's advantaged or disadvantaged. It's all to do with our heart. Isn't that good that our God, and our God is holy, and he says, you know what? I want you to be holy as well because you know why? I want, I want blessing to follow your life. I don't want the tragic circumstances of life to destroy you. So holiness, so why is it that sometimes not only people in our general society struggle with living right, but why do even Christians? Can we just for a moment take a passage of scripture from a well-known passage of scripture, uh, Luke chapter 15, and let me relate it to you. Many of you know it, but let me, I'll read part of it um, and, um, and share part of it, this story. Luke 15, 11 to 24, prodigal son, lost son, Second son, younger son, whatever name you want to put on him, this is the story of his life. In about, um, in about 13 verses, it says this, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. We're just going to talk about the younger one. The younger one said, God, uh, Dad, give me my share of the estate. 
So he divided his property between them. You know, him saying that to his Jewish father, a Jewish young man saying to a Jewish father while the Jewish father's still alive is like saying to the father, Dad, I just wish you were dead. Just give me the estate. It's, a, it's not a good start. That's what, he's, that's what he's basically saying because tradition and culture was that young Jewish men never got the half of the estate until the father had passed away. So the young man says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me the estate anyway. Great. Not a good, good look, is it? Um, and then he says the younger, so the, the younger son got a hold of it. He, he went into a distant country, squandered his wealth in wild living or wasteful living. Some scriptures say wasteful living. He spent everything he had. There was an economic downturn, severe famine in the country, and he began to be in great need. He went and hide himself uh, and started to feed pigs and got so, so hungry he wanted to eat what the pigs were eating. Uh, he, lowered, he, he longed to fill his stomach, as it says, with the pods of the pigs. He came to his senses. Aren't we glad that if you're here this morning and you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you probably there was a moment in your life when you came to your senses and said, hey, there's something more to life. And um, he came to his senses and he said, how many of my father's servants have food to spare and I'm starving to death? This is ridiculous. And so he went, he got up, um, and, you know, he got his little speech together. And this is a great thought. He says, you know, I'm going to say to my father, I've sinned against heaven. Notice the, he says, I've sinned against God and I've also sinned against you. So he went back, went back to his dad. He got out of the pig pen and his dad, and uh, he didn't even get his speech out. And his dad embraced him and kissed him. And he says, dad, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. And his father said, amen. Great. Well, that's past. Let's have a party because you're back and I can see your heart is towards me and towards God. So they had a party and the son was restored as a son and he didn't become just a servant. What a great story. There's wonderful truths in there. So here we go. Just in relation to how, how, how you know, to live holy, um, not to live um, some stupid life that says I'm holier than thou, I'm better than the rest or anything like that, but just to live what God says, I want you to be holy. Here's a, here's a thought. The problem can be that our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than God said it. Sometimes in life what happens is, see, if you see the prodigal son, I love his, re- his response to finally, he finally come to his senses and he says, you know what? I've sinned against God first. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you, Dad, but I've sinned against God. Sometimes... Our, our, our um, sorrow over what we've done wrong in the past is just centered around ourselves. Oh, I've blown it. Or maybe I've been found out, you know, and we regret. And, and it just doesn't, and it never gets to the point where we acknowledge that, hey, God, maybe I've just really grieved your heart more than anything else. I need to put you first in, in the picture. I need to see that what I've done to you. There's a wonderful theologian called W.S. Plummer. He says this, we never see sin correctly until we see it against God. We see it against God. Now you say, why should we be God-centered instead of, because sometimes in our, in our um, sorrow of what we've done wrong, we're just focusing on ourselves. It's the same with life and worship. You know, when we give our focus to our Heavenly Father and put Him first in our lives and give our focus to Him, everything else is put in place so much better, isn't it? And so it's the same with their sin when we say, Father, it's against you. David actually said in Psalm 54, he said, you know, after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba and after he'd, of course, was involved in murder and Bathsheba's wife, he said, you know what, God? It's against you that I've sinned and against you only. 
He acknowledged. No wonder David went on to become a, went on to continue to be God's, you know, um, blessed man. You know, the man failed. You know, mega failure. And yet he continued to love God and God loved him. How did that happen? Because he had a heart that when he was sorrowful, he actually repented of what he'd done and just didn't regret. And he focused upon God. He said, God, I've got to... See, um, there was a character in the Bible. That is, why is it so important that we give God, understand we've hurt God first and, and grieved him and come to him and repent? Because you know what? Because there's some sorrow that won't lead to God. It'll lead to death. There's some regret that'll lead to death. Uh, there's a guy called Judas. He was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Remember the story. He's, he sold Jesus out for 40 pieces of silver. He was, um, you know, he, he betrayed Jesus. And yet he finally realized that when Jesus went to the cross, he took the money back and he threw it at the Pharisees' feet and said, have your money back. I've done the wrong thing. I've blown it. I've failed. But his sorrow didn't lead to repentance because there's a difference between repentance and regret. His sorrow led to regret. And where did it lead him? To the top of a hill where he hung himself. Folks, I don't want you to have that type of sorrow. And sometimes when you're self-consumed about what you've failed and done wrong, certainly there's moments in life when you say, God, I've blown it. But you've got to come to God because God will always take your sin and wipe it clean. Regret will never wipe it clean. It'll leave you with it. And, 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 and to tell you the truth, it wants to destroy you. But sorrow unto God is true repentance. And it says, Father, here I am. And he lifts you up. He doesn't take you down. He's like the prodigal father's son who embraces you and says, come on, okay, you're truly repentant. Let's move on now. I love that. And sometimes we've got to understand that we've got to get a proper perspective on, on who needs to forgive us more than anything. Sometimes you need to forgive yourself. Let God forgive you, forgive yourself and forgive others. There's about the three things we need to forgive in life. But it's so important. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, Sorrow without repentance is a kind that results in death. <laughs> Can't get it much clearer. Sorrow without repentance. If it's just sorrow with regret, it can lead to death. So we've got to get that right, haven't we? Here's the second thing. A second problem can be in living, wanting to live holy lives before God that we can be misunderstand the Christian walk and how we should live. See, we have, um, uh, you're here this morning and you've received Jesus Christ and you believe in Jesus Christ and you um, uh, have um, a relationship with him. And you know what? Um, that was a moment in time when you accepted him and you believed in your heart by faith. Isn't it true? It's faith that we receive Christ. When you become a Christian, uh, God doesn't reach down through the clouds and stamp you on the forehead and you're forever marked with this, term, uh, uh, this phrase across your head, Christian. You don't get that on your forehead, do you? You don't get born again on your forehead. You don't get child of God, no. But what he does is, through the Holy Spirit, he stamps it on your heart. And you know by faith today. It's by faith that we believe Jesus Christ rose died and rose again to take our sin, isn't it? It's by faith that we're forgiven this morning. It's a wonderful walk of faith. There's no effort involved in that. We just have to come to him as we are. He, we, he says, I accept you long before you do anything for me. He says, even while you are still sinners, I loved you. Isn't that a great God? So, so our commitment and our understanding needs to be that we salvation takes faith, no effort on our part. But... A personal holiness? Let me be honest, it takes effort. 
If you're going to continue to walk with Christ, there's effort involved in that. There's a personal responsibility, isn't there, to live a holy life, to live a right life, to say no to temptation and sin. Isn't that true? There's a personal responsibility you and I need to take. Come on. Some, you know, the truth is, is that we don't come to Christ and he puts his spiritual force field around. Now he gives us the Holy Spirit. But there's no Star Wars moment in life where the force is with us apart from the Holy Spirit, praise God. And he's not a force. He's a person. Amen. And he lives within us. But we don't have this protection that says that you can't still make wrong decisions. You certainly can. So while salvation is free and no effort on our part, responsibility to live for God and live right, there was a continual responsibility and effort involved in that. So important. The prodigal son didn't uh, sit in his mess in the pig pen and say, well, maybe I, I know I've done wrong, but I'll just sit here for a while and see if somebody or somehow or something comes along and helps me, lifts me out of this and takes me back to my father. No, he took personal responsibility and he got himself up out of the pig pen and went back to his father. Isn't that true? And acknowledged his sin and repented. That's what we need to understand. See, the prodigal lifted himself out. People can say, um, you know, um, you know, could have said to the prodigal, well, you get up and go back to your father. And other people uh, may say that to us, but, but and, and they may say, well, this is the way you should walk or this is what you should do. But in the end, it takes our heart attitude and our responsibility to actually take, to do that. And so to living personal holiness, there's a responsibility. See, repentance is, I've mentioned already, is an essential turning point because, uh, uh, it requires ownership of our responsibility for whatever part we have played in doing wrong. That's what responsibility. And repentance not only accepts the be, um, responsibility for whatever part we've played, but it, it, repentance helps us to turn away from that and turn, to, turn in the right direction, isn't it? That's what repentance does. Sometimes we don't talk about repentance. We don't want to upset anybody. Well, folks, let me upset you. You've got to repent. <laughs> Is that okay? I do it with a smile. Because why? So that you could appease God? No, so that you could live a blessed life. Not under the, not under the, the weight of sin and trouble and tragedy, but live a blessed life under the joy and the peace that God wants to give you. We've got to take responsibility. Over many years, my precious three beautiful daughters who I love dearly, have said to me on the odd occasion, you make me unhappy when you do that. It's often in the times when I've disciplined them. I'm unhappy. And my response to them is, don't make me responsible for your happiness. You give me so much authority over your life. You mean you're unhappy because I've made you unhappy? Why don't you take responsibility for your unhappiness? Our Heavenly Father says, take responsibility for your unhappiness. <laughs> take responsibility. And it often involves turning away from that which wants to create unhappiness and turning to reality and truth and to his word and his ways. Amen. Our third thing about personal holiness is that 
And I, look, I, I, I never often preach what I've never been myself, but I've got to take sin seriously. I've got to take sin seriously because, seriously, because mental, I can mentally ca- categorize sin into which may be, you know, oh, this is really bad, this is not so bad, and this is, oh, this is just tolerable. I can do that one with that, you know, it's not really bad. And we, we, we have this wonderful little exercise we do in our mind. Now, you may never do it, but sometimes our actions and the way we conduct our lives can be, oh, there's certain programs on telly, oh, you know, um, it's okay to watch, but, you know, you just, you, you, there's a, you know, you can watch. Watch the MA, but don't watch the R. I don't know how you do it. There's no R on telly, is there? Probably not. Anyway, but you know, there's certain things we say, oh, well, you can, you can look at that, but you can't look at that. You can eat this, but you can't eat that. I, I don't know. It's a bit religious, to be honest, but the reality is, if we're saying that, then we've got to, sometimes we ask, a, we default to this, Where's the, where do I draw the line? Where do I draw the line? And, and the problem with the prodigal son was at first, um, he, he just took his father's inheritance. Was that illegal? No, it wasn't illegal. It wasn't illegal. It probably wasn't, it wasn't a good decision in terms of his relationship with his father, but it wasn't illegal. It wasn't wrong. And so his father, he, he went out and waited, but the trouble was he wastefully, um, he started out just taking his inheritance and then he just drifted into wasteful living and dis- destroying his life until he ended up in a pig pen and starving to death and all of a sudden he comes to his senses and wakes up and says, what have I done? But it was a slow drift, wasn't it? It might seem like in Scripture that it just happened all at once, but it was a slow drift. And you know what's a slippery slope of justification sometimes in our sin? We've got to cut it off at the start, don't we, before we slip on the slope of justification of my sin. We've got to take it seriously. We have to be careful. Uh, we don't start to justify sin by asking the question, is there anything wrong with it, really? We ask that question, is there anything wrong? And if we ask that a question, then we start to ask the next question, when will it start to be wrong? How far can I go before it starts to be wrong? Where's the line that I should not step over? So we start to ask those questions. And if you remember a former sermon that I, prayed, I preached many months ago, it's not a good question to ask those questions. A good question is, is it wise? You see, for the young man and the young woman who are courting or maybe in a relationship, um, uh, the question may be, well, how far do we go with our physical contact here? You know, and, uh, and the answer may be, well, we can kiss. Is there anything illegal about kissing? No, praise God about that. <laughs> but is it wise for a young couple to do that? Maybe not. Maybe it's not wise. Because if you start with that, how far do you go? Where's the line? Well, we can go a bit further, a bit further, and, be further, and then the pain of being involved sexually comes along and, and hurts. Praise God, God's a redeemer, and he takes us out of that and brings us new life, and we can have a better life. But the reality is, why don't you cut it off and say, well, there's some boundaries I'm going to put. I think a great boundary for young couples is just don't go into each other's bedrooms. Is that illegal? In my household, it is. No, no, it's right. <laughs> no, it's not illegal. It's not illegal, but it's wise. Can you see? Treat sin seriously because it'll take you down a slippery slope. I won't bring up any personal stories about my family because I've just got a hundred running through my head at the moment, but we won't go there because some of them are in the service this morning. But there is lots. Everybody's heard of the story of the frog in the water. Everybody's heard that. If you don't know it, let me, let me just give you the, the outline of it. 
You can take a beautiful little green frog and you take a boiling pot of water and you can dangle him over that and there's no way he wants to jump into that. He'll, he'll try and resist that pot water as much as he can. Okay? In actual fact, they say if you throw him in, he'll jump out. It's not, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not trying to suggest you do that. Uh, I, don't, I think that's cruel. But the reality is he can, he can determine the temperature straight away. He doesn't like hot water. You take a cold bowl of water and you put him in there and he goes, wow, this is nice. Because green frogs in water love that. They love, they always come out in the rain, don't they? And so he's sitting there in that little bowl. And you know, you know the story. You heat up the bowl and the temperature slowly gets hotter and hotter over maybe a couple hours. And you know what? More often than not, they tell us, because I've never done this, but more often than not, they say that frog will boil to death because he doesn't realize the temperatures are changing around him. I want to say, have you realized the temperature sometimes is changing around you and you've got to cut it off and say, no, I'm not going to engage or involve, look at that or say that, or I'm going to just realize the temperature is changing. Don't let the temperature change. I won't get involved in that atmosphere because it'll just take me down a slope where I boil to death. Amen. (laughs) We've got to be careful. Treat it seriously. So what's wise? Not just how far can I... You know, let's not build a hospital at the bottom of the cliff. Let's build a fence at the top of the cliff. But let's do even more than that. Let's say to our young people, let's say to every person on the earth, don't even go near the fence. Keep away from it as far as you can. How's that? Oh, you're just being old and, you know, that's old. That's old culture. No, it's not. It's wise. Oh, I just want to go and look over the edge. Oh, well, go and look over the edge. Before you know it, you want to sit on it. Before you know it, you're toppled over. Keep away from it. You want to live holy as he's holy? Just keep away from the fence. Stop looking over there. There's only dead people over there. (laughs) So every young man and one young woman asks the question in regard to how, where's the line? How close can I get to it? Or how close can I get away from it? Every person who diets asks the question, how close can I get to it? How close can I stay away from it? What can I eat? What can't I eat? You know, in moderation, they say. But reality is every accountant maybe is asked the question at tax time, um, you know, in relation to tax laws, how much can I claim? How much can I claim? Where can I push the limits? Why don't we just stay well away from the limits and say, God, I just want to be above reproach. Because God just says, you know why? Because I want you to be blessed. Are you and I willing to call sin, sin, not because it's big or little, but because God just says, he forbids it. He just doesn't want you to be involved. In relation to our same-sex marriage, maybe in two months we'll find ourselves with a law that says same-sex marriages are acknowledged. It's not for us to get up in arms and start to, you know, let's go and punch someone out or do something like that because people need to be loved. It's just the, the, the stuff that they're involved in that's just destructive. And we as a church don't get in, need to get militant and start to, you know, well, again, you know, they... People need to see a better way. I often say, you know, don't fight the darkness. Just turn on the light. Turn on the light, Father. Show them to Christ the reality of his love. But, you know, the reality is, is that the government might make it a law. Does that make it right? No. Because you know what? Ingrained within each one of us is a moral code that God has put in us when he created us. In every human being in the face of the earth, there's a moral code. And that moral code says things like one man for one woman and not with another man or another woman. That moral code talks about, you know, that moral, we don't 
no need to lie. It, it, it's ingrained within us. It's not something that we've, we've learned. It's ingrained within us. It's principles that if we break them, we get hurt. It's not like the speed limit. You can change the speed limit. That's a law of the land. But the laws of God, you can't change. They're built in concrete within the principles of this creation in his earth. And one of them is, well, many of them, as I've mentioned. So we've got to be careful. The, the, the government may change the law. Uh, not that I think the present, a majority of our present government want to actually change the law. I think that's why they're trying to get they're really, let's be honest, let's just call it the elephant in the room. They want us to vote because they know there's a strong possibility it won't get up. But if we go for a, if they go for a parliamentary vote with all the politicians, there's a strong chance it'll get up. That's why. Let's just call it that. Is that true? Is that what you're thinking? That's what I was thinking. Anyway. So the answer to all of these things you know what, it's time just to continue to face our responsibility for holiness. It's time to realize holiness is not a bun with black stockings and a long black dress. It's, that's not holiness. Holiness is of the heart. Holiness is, you know, holiness is a relationship with a living God who says, I love you, and I'm not here to whack you every time you do wrong, but it's going to destroy you if you continue to do wrong. Too often we say we're defeated by this or we're defeated by sin or we're defeated by... I just want to challenge us. We, we often, it's not defeat as much as it's just disobedience. I just got to stop being disobedient. Sometimes I don't think it's um, um, deliverance we need. I think it's just deliberate. I think, no, I, I, I believe in deliverance because I think the enemy does attach himself and there's things that we've got to break and the strongholds of the enemy. Oh, I'm totally agreeing with that. But sometimes I think it, it, there wouldn't be a need for deliverance if we just got deliberate, deliberate about our lives and just saying, hey, this is, this is just disobedience. I need to stop it. And when I say I'm just defeated, sometimes in this terminology, I can just find myself slipping out from under my own responsibility and, um, and I need to just... Uh, realize that defeat is just a sometimes default method for me to say I don't want to be responsible I just need to be obedient because the word of God says in Hebrews 12 1 um, thanks Kate say let us throw off the sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us see what Paul's saying throw off the sin that wants to just trip us up in life destroy our lives he doesn't say here, throw off the sin because God doesn't like it. Well, of course God doesn't like it. But it's not, it's not because God doesn't. God, you know, you sin or not sin today, God will love you the same. Far out. What a God. It's just that he doesn't, he can't agree. Because he knows it'll destroy the very one he loves. Would I do that to my wife? Say, honey, continue to, you know, do that. Or whatever it may be. I love her too much. And, and, and you know, we, we sometimes say to each other, hey, let's just be careful of this because it'll destroy our lives. We, we want to care for the one we love. God is no less. He loves us. He says, and it doesn't say throw off the sin because God then will be pleased. No, it says throw off the sin because it will ensnare you and destroy you. And then it says, let us run with endurance. Endurance means that sometimes we're going to be faced with temptations to the left and right. We're running along and go, wow, look at that. No, I don't need to look at that. Well, you know what I'm saying. We, it, it can, it, we've got to endure. If the Bible didn't say endurance, it wouldn't mean endurance. That means we're going to have to be determined. We're going to have to be responsible. We're going to have to say, God, come on. That it, and run the race that's set before us. Clearly expects us to assume responsibility for running the Christian race. The Bible says, walk in the spirit and you not fulfill the lust of the flesh. 
Hallelujah for the Holy Spirit. You need the Holy Spirit. You need the baptism in the Holy Spirit. I believe you need the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I believe you need the speaking in tongues in the Holy Spirit. It's powerful. I believe that's what the Word of God would want us to have. But I know there's a personal responsibility to walk in the Spirit. And then I have to make personal choices to walk that way. It doesn't say God will force you to walk in the Spirit. No, you've got to walk in the Spirit every day. Isn't that true? God makes provision for holiness, but makes us responsible for using His provision. His Word, His presence, His Holy Spirit. Can we stand this morning? You're a bit quiet this morning. You okay? God loves you too much. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. We heard it this morning already. And he says, come on, just be responsible. Just be personal. Personal in your relationship. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. I am so glad that he does. He says, submit to God, resist the devil. And you know what? The devil will flee. But we just got to submit to God. Put him first. Put him first. Put him first. I'm glad for his redeeming qualities. I'm glad that when I have failed and I have sinned, and man, I have failed and I have sinned, that I come to him and I say, God, I acknowledge you and I forgive. I ask for your mercy. And I thank you that you accept me, you restore me, and you make me and you help me to walk forward again. Praise God for that. So today, there's no condemnation. Do not allow that condemnation in your hearts. Is that cool? Don't receive that because it's not about condemnation. It's about commitment, response, and relationship and walking on in power. Maybe we're here today and you just need to say, God, just accept me again. God, here I am. I'd just love to pray for you where you are today. And I'm just talking to all of us. This is not necessarily for salvation, but this is just to say, God, I, I just come to you. I just yield my life afresh this morning. I just thank you for your forgiveness and your mercy and your grace and your love towards me. And I'm not going to live in condemnation. This is the prayer I'm going to pray, something along these lines. I'm not going to live in, I'm going to live in victory in you. But I'm going to be focused on you and not on myself. If you want to just join me in that prayer, I just ask you to lift your hand to the Lord this morning. Let's just close our eyes, give everybody else. Be bold with him today. Don't just sit back and say, oh, I don't know. But no, be bold with him today. You honour him. You're not honouring me. It's not, it's, this church is not about me or the pastors of this church or about any particular person. It's about him. I want us to understand that. It's about him. So, Father, today you see the hands that are lifted and behind our hand is our heart. And our heart says, God, you know, the reality is I find it hard to be holy sometimes, God. I find the reality is the world presses in and tempts and all the stuff goes down and I just get, it gets difficult. But today, again, I just acknowledge you and I ask for your strength. Holy Spirit, you've given me, Holy Spirit, you want to come and give me great strength. So we invite you. We make a responsible decision. Holy Spirit, come. We need you today. Father, we, we thank you for our lives that you love us. Uh, you're not always pleased what we do, but you don't, doesn't deny your love for us is incredible. And we thank you for that today and help us to walk in that victory. It says your kindness towards us leads us to repentance in your word, Lord. So your kindness, we just, if there's a need today for any of us to repent and turn from what we've done, we just do that right now. You do it right now. We just do that. We repent, we turn from it. 
and we turn to you, Lord. And we thank you today for your goodness and your mercy and your grace for us. Help us live for you, Lord. Not just live for our selfish reasons, but to live for you so we can love others. Father, in this whole holiness thing, help us to get a right perspective in that it's a heart attitude. It's not an outward appearance or anything else like that, but it's what you want us to be like you. And you're merciful and you're gracious and you're kind and you're loving and you're sovereign and you're amazing. And that's what you want us to be like. We thank you today for that, God. And today we just take the opportunity to pray, Father, for every precious person who is involved in a same-sex relationship. And we pray blessing upon their lives. We don't want to stand in judgment of them, God. We stand in judgment according to your word, but not to condemn them, but to pray that they would find life and find it in you. Every woman and every man, every gender-fluid person who doesn't know whether they're male or female and they want to swap over and all that stuff that happens, it goes down. We just pray, we pray for them, God, that they would see the kindness of God would lead them to repentance. And we pray for our government that the decisions would be made and the right decisions would be made in relation to same-sex marriage. And we commit it to you today. We pray for a holy outpouring upon our nation, if that's possible. And that, God, people would respond and see you and do an amazing thing and come to you, God, and see that you want to bring blessing and not destruction. And that and the laws that we create will sometimes bring destruction, and we don't want that. So we pray for our nation today and pray blessing. And, Father, today we commit ourselves to you. And we thank you for one another. In Jesus' name, we give you all the honor and glory. And everyone agreed, said, amen. Amen. Have a wonderful day, church. Yeah, give him honor. Give him praise. Have we got a song? Can we sing? Yeah, can you do it by yourself? (laughs) Come on. Come, Spirit, come, yes, Lord. All your children shall behold it. Dreams awaken in this moment. Spirit come, Spirit come, pour it out, let your love run over, here and now, let your glory fill this house, pour it out, yes Lord, let your love run over, Let your glory fill this earth. For me, but let it become reality to our lives. What your word says and what you say to us today. And I know you've been speaking messages to every heart and different lives here, even different to what maybe I've shared, but what you want to share. So we commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great morning.